and gentlemen, welcome to Exhibition History, the place to be for the greatest stories the world has ever known. Join us for each sword episode where we cover the greatest adventures and voyages of the past. Exhibition History, Episode 2, The Narvaez Expedition The expedition of the famed conquistador and explorer, Hernando de Soto, is one of great influence and importance to the history of North America. His lengthy venture through the American South would have far-reaching consequences for the entirety of the Western Hemisphere, and is certainly worthy of its own episode in its own right. He tends to be one of the more well-known explorers. But as you've probably noticed on account of the title, this episode isn't about de Soto. Because when Hernando de Soto set sail from Cuba in 1539 at the head of 700 men, he did so in the ghostly footsteps of their ill-fated predecessor, the Narvaez Expedition. For those of you already familiar with the Age of Exploration, the name Narvaez may ring a bell, as it should, for this is not the first time he makes a prolific appearance in the history books. After helping to conquer the island of Cuba for Spain under Diego Velázquez de Cuellar, the first governor of Cuba, Panfilo de Narvaez would be sent by Velázquez in 1519 to hunt down and defeat a rogue conquistador in the heart of Mexico, a certain troublemaker by the name of Hernán Cortés. You may have heard of him, being that he famously toppled the Aztec Empire. This era is such a rich period of show-worthy episodes, and I can assure you that this will not be the first time we visit the Americas in the 1500s. Anyways, back on topic. Best in battle, and with most of his soldiers defecting to the opposition, Narvaez, now with one eye as he had lost the other in combat, was briefly held prisoner by Cortés before returning to Spain. Once in the motherland, he would remain for a few years before securing royal permission from Emperor Charles V of Spain to explore the mysterious land to the north of Cuba, at the time known as La Florida. The peninsula of Florida, discovered by Juan Ponce de Leon in 1513, had by the 1520s yet to be settled by Europeans or even fully explored. In 1527, Narvaez mobilized his political connections and was granted the title of governor for all lands between Florida and northern Mexico, down to approximately the location of modern-day Tampico, essentially giving him at least notional control over much of the mainland coast of the Gulf of Mexico. Collecting the fleet and recruiting a large band of adventurers, Panfilo de Narvaez departed from Cadiz, Spain on June 17, 1527. Sailing west for the Americas, the Narvaez expedition had officially begun, and it is here where our story truly begins. Making up the expedition were five ships and a body of 600 soldiers, sailors, servants, and wives, predominantly recruited from Spain and Portugal, though small amounts of Italians and mixed Africans were also present. The treasurer and master of arms of the expedition was one Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, whose important roles as what were essentially the paymaster and sheriff made him more or less second-in-command of the expedition. As fate would have it, Cabeza de Vaca would be only one of a handful of men who would go on to survive the expedition, and, similar to Xenophon and the 10,000, would go on to write about the entire ordeal in great detail. Yeah, maybe that's a spoiler, but his writings have been in circulation for hundreds of years. I had to set the stage somehow. It is these writings, translated and printed nowadays in various forms under various titles, from which we source everything we know about the expedition. After having stopped in the Canary Islands to top off on supplies, the expedition continued on to the Spanish colony of Hispaniola, arriving in Santo Domingo, located in the modern country of the Dominican Republic, sometime in mid-September. Here, the expedition would suffer its first losses. Staying in the port for 45 days, the members of the expedition had plenty of time to listen on the news and rumors that came in with each passing ship. Eventually, word reached the expedition of the disastrous voyage of Lucas Vasquez de Ayon. Tasked with settling the region defined today as South Carolina, 
De Ayon's colony collapsed after only three months. Racked by cold, hunger, disease, and hostile natives, of the 700 intrepid souls who had landed on the continent, only 150 had made it out alive. Chilled to the bone at the horrors that may await them, 140 men and women packed their bags and deserted Narvez, walking away from the ships and disappearing into the city, unwilling to go any further. Desertions, however, were quite common for the time, even amongst professional standing armies, and despite this initial setback, Narvez left port and sailed to Cuba. Upon reaching southern Cuba, Narvez used old connections on the island to purchase a sixth ship and to recruit additional men to replace some of the deserters. Tapping into these contacts, Narvez sent Cabeza de Vaca, as well as another captain, with two ships to the port of Trinidad, Cuba, in order to requisition more men and supplies. Unbeknownst to them, a hurricane was barreling towards the area, and Cabeza de Vaca, relatively safe ashore as the storm hit, was forced to watch the sea claim both ships as well as 60 of the men and many of the expedition's horses. Adding insult to injury, the trip proved fruitless, as all the requisition supplies were also claimed by the sea. With their morale low and hurting for supplies, Narvez was forced to reconsolidate and, after collecting Cabeza de Vaca and the other maroon survivors, his expedition rode out the winter months in the city of Cienfuegos. But Narvez's move to keep the expedition in winter quarters served to only worsen their supply situation, and, running low on provisions, it was decided that they would have to sail to Havana in order to restock at the earliest opportunity. While the expedition wintered in Cienfuegos, Narvez hired an additional ship and a man known to history by the name of Diego Morello, a self-proclaimed master pilot, allegedly with tremendous experience sailing in and out of the waters around the Gulf of Mexico. The term pilot, at the time, essentially referred to a form of maritime navigator, one who specialized in shallow waters away from the open ocean, so you can get the idea of airplanes out of your head, if that's a pilot you were thinking of. Morello's master piloting credentials, however, are doubted by both Cabeza de Vaca and modern historians, as when the fleet of five ships finally departed Cienfuegos in late February, Morello led the entire expedition right into shallow water, running all five ships aground on shoals where they were stranded for just over two weeks. It was only after a passing storm lifted the ships off the shoals did the expedition continue on once more, now lacking a further two weeks worth of supplies. And thus, for better or for worse, the five ships with some 480 men were back on the move. Sailing onwards for the city of Havana, the port was within view of the fleet. Literally, the crews could see the masts of the anchored ships, they were that close, when strong winds began to blow them off course and away from the harbor. Frustrated with his inability to reach the port, Narvez decided to abandon the resupply plans altogether and to instead make for the mainland, passing on the idea of resupply and continuing on to their objective. For most of those on board, those masts were the last glimpses of a world they would never see again. Sailing north, in early April 1528, they had reached what is now the area of Tampa Bay, Florida. Go Bucks! Originally spotting land just north of the bay, as well as an unfamiliar harbor, the expedition continued to search for Tampa Bay itself, not realizing that they were already there, guided by Morello, who was allegedly familiar with the area. That being said, the bay's entrance was overshot, and after two days of sailing in search of the opening, as well as the loss of one of the five ships to rough seas, the Narvez expedition finally decided to make landfall. After weeks at sea, the Spaniards were happy to finally be ashore, and upon landing, hurriedly began to construct a camp for the night. The next day, this new, mysterious land of La Florida was officially claimed by Narvez, its new royal governor. Near the landing site was a small village of Native Americans, who, luckily for the Spaniards, exchanged much-needed food for small trinkets and beads. I want to mention at this point that I'll be referring to the body of people on the Narvez expedition collectively as Spaniards or the Spanish. 
Yes, I did say that there were Portuguese, Italians, and mixed Africans among them, but it's just easier this way. If you have an issue, please contact us at the email in the podcast description and ask for the scriptwriter. Hint, it's me. Anyways, venturing inland, the expedition began to explore the surrounding area, finding for sure what is now Old Tampa Bay, as well as coming across another native village, this one possessing numerous crates from shipwrecked Spanish freighters. Finding more food, and now gold, the expedition began questioning the natives, asking where more gold could be found. In reply, the natives communicated that to the north existed the land of the Appalachie, a rich land abundant in gold, food, and other material wealth. The natives and the Spaniards, however, in case you were wondering, did not speak each other's respective languages, so all this was done through a series of gestures. Historians are unsure whether or not the Spaniards were a victim of tragic miscommunication or were purposely misled by the natives in order to rid the seaborne invaders from their lands. Regardless, Narvaez received this information and promptly began to plan the expedition's inevitable march north. Consulting the rest of the officers within the expedition, Narvaez put forth a plan to march the army northward along the western coast of Florida with his ships traveling on a parallel route by sea. The goal was to find the natural harbor that Morello had spoken of before, though no one knew at the time that the harbor was A, in fact Tampa Bay, or B, that they had already passed the entrance to the harbor that was now to their south. But hey, hindsight's 2020, and satellite imagery is 2021. Get it? What I'm trying to say is that they only had so much information to work off of. Take it up with the editor. Hint, it's also me. According to the plan, after reconvening at this proposed northern harbor, they would then begin the inland search for Appalachian earnest. Taking the supply problem into account, as the supply of rations was extremely limited, Cabeza de Vaca instead put forth the idea of everyone boarding the ships and traveling to the harbor by sea, and then creating a settlement that they could use as a base of operations. That was the original goal of the expedition, after all. Why else would there be ten of the Spaniards' wives amongst them if the goal wasn't to settle the land long term? It was a good idea, to me at least, maybe to you as well, but he was met with almost unanimous disagreement, as all but one of the officers, the expedition's scribe by the name of Geronimo de Alanes, agreed with Narvaez's plan. Cabeza de Vaca, perhaps realizing the expedition was doomed, strongly pushed against Narvaez's plan. Attempting to use his powers as the master of arms to prevent the ships from leaving, he ordered Narvaez not to send the ships away, going so far as to tell Alanes to write the order down in the expedition log. Narvaez, first in command of the expedition, shrugged off Cabeza de Vaca and ordered the expedition be ready to move. He then called Cabeza de Vaca a coward and told Alanes to put that in the log. Cabeza de Vaca promptly stormed out of the meeting. Despite this clash, Narvaez still recognized the talent and leadership ability of Cabeza de Vaca and wished for him to command the fleet while Narvaez marched with the army. Cabeza de Vaca, however, still fully believing the expedition was doomed and that the army was as good as dead, chose to march rather than sail, as to do so otherwise, he believed, would cement his place as a coward. Placing another man in charge of the fleet, the Narvaez expedition began their move north at the start of May. In total, 300 men and approximately 40 horses began to conduct the overland march, paralleled at sea by the three remaining ships and the rest of the expedition. I say three ships, because shortly after the proclamation of claiming La Florida for Narvaez in Spain, Morello was told to take a ship and to search for the natural harbor he kept talking about. Should he be successful, he was to return to the expedition at once. Should he be unable to find it, his orders were to travel south to Havana and return with another ship Narvaez had in waiting laden with supplies, the one they were meant to pick up earlier before the wind shut them out. The army would never see Morello again. As the expedition moved northwards, over time Narvaez led his men deeper and deeper inland, 
following what navigable terrain there was, taking the army further away from the fleet. Fifteen days into the march, the army reached a fast-flowing river, one that took the entire day to cross. Once the army had made it to the other side, Narvaez sent scouts downstream to find and locate the fleet or a potential harbor where the army could wait for them. They would return with sightings of neither. The fleet had vanished, and the men of the expedition's ground force were now officially on their own. Though separated from the fleet, the Spaniards' luck had not abandoned them. Not yet, at least. Stumbling upon a native village shortly after crossing the river, the army tore into the settlement and devoured all the food that the village possessed, unleashing themselves upon the cornfields. The army, throughout their entire march thus far, had been near starving to a man. Forced to live off what meager food they could forge from the land or acquire, through one means or another, from the natives, it is no small miracle that no one died of starvation on the march north. Trudging further up the Florida Peninsula, the Spaniards would eventually come across the Temuqua tribe. Well aware of their approach, as news tends to spread of a foreign army sacking villages for food, the tribal chief decided to get in front of the matter and met with the Spaniards before they could cause the tribe any harm. Upon their meeting, he is delighted to find out that the expedition was looking for the Apalachee, the sworn enemy of the Temuqua. For now, he would exchange gifts with the expedition and appear to be their friend. Passing through Temuquan territory, the army was forced to cross the Suwannee River, the body of water that essentially separates the peninsula of Florida from what is known as the Florida Panhandle. Seeing the raging waters in front of them and wishing to rouse the spirits of his starving men, an officer by the name of Diego Velasquez, no relation to the first governor of Cuba, boldly charged into the river on horseback. A daring move to be sure, the inspirational act accomplished anything but inspiring the men, as both Velasquez and his horse promptly drowned. He was the first casualty the Narvaez expedition had taken since reaching Florida, and he wouldn't be the last. In the meantime, however, the starving army paused to rest and ate the horse. Truly the hallmark of a well-planned expedition. I can assure you, it only goes downhill from here. The next day, the Spaniards arrived at a large Temuquin village and were greeted with gifts of maize, eating to their heart's desire and enjoying the friendly nature of the Temuquin people. It was not to last. That night, when fetching water, a Spanish soldier was fired upon from the woodline, the arrow narrowly missing the frightened man. In the morning, the army awoke to find the village entirely abandoned. On guard, the expedition proceeded onwards in search of Apalachee. Learning that a force of the hostile Temuquan warriors was falling behind them, Narvaez laid a trap. Drawing them in towards the marching column, the Spanish leapt at them and took a few of the warriors as prisoners to be used as guides. After this sudden upset, the hostile Temuqua faded back into the woods, refusing to challenge the expedition ever again. Finally, on the 25th of June, after approximately seven weeks of marching, the Spaniards, now 299 strong, could see the Apalachee capital of Anhaica in the distance. Laying eyes upon a large village numbering approximately 40 homes, Narvaez sent Cabeza de Vaca with 59 soldiers, nine of which were on horseback, to enter the village. Initially finding nothing but women and children, soon the men of the village appeared, briefly ambushing the Spanish before running back off into the countryside. The only casualty of the engagement was a horse. Now in control of Anhaica, the Spanish were able to lay claim to the vast fields of ripe corn ready to be harvested. The land around them was relatively flat and poor, with numerous lakes, both large and small, and dangerous arrays of fallen trees. The homes were short and constructed in places deemed to protect them, relatively, from the fierce hurricanes that blew through the area. If any of this sounds familiar to my American listeners, this area would later become the grounds for state capital, because what was Anhaika is now the city of Tallahassee, Florida. Go Knowles! A mere two hours after occupying the village, the Apalachee who had previously fled now peacefully returned, 
begging for their women and children to be handed over to them. The Spanish agreed, though they kept a tribal leader as a hostage in order to ensure the Apalachee would not launch another attack. The Apalachee, rather understandably, became enraged and launched an attack the following day, actually burning down the homes the Spanish were using as shelters before the Spaniards rallied, sallied forth, and pressed the Apalachee by the blades of their swords, forcing them to melt back into the surrounding lakes and fallen forests. The next day, Apalachee tribesmen from a neighboring village assaulted the Spanish positions, almost certainly spurred on and joined by those driven from Anhaica, before they too were forced to retreat. Both attacks resulted in the recorded loss of one Indian each, with the armored Spanish suffering no losses. The expedition would remain in Anhaika for 25 days. During this time, they would send out the occasional patrol to survey the area, though their travels would be cut short by the difficulties of passing through the surrounding environment, what with its collapsed timbers, countless lakes, and awful trails. Individually questioning captive natives, the expedition learned that the surrounding area was sparsely inhabited, and that the physical environment was much of the same as what they currently saw all throughout the Appalachian lands. Anhaika itself, as small and poor as the village was, was more or less the bustling metropolis of the area, and every nearby village was both less populated and more destitute. To continue venturing inland, the Spaniards were told, was to meet only fewer and poorer peoples, while simultaneously encountering great deserts and wastelands. To the south, however, nine days' march to the sea was a village of Alt, rich in agriculture and fishing. This information, as well as the constant Appalachian attacks on Spanish water parties, which consistently wounded both men and horses, convinced the Spanish it was time to cut their losses in Anhaica and march south. Thus, the expedition packed their bags and set off for Alt. The first day of travel was uneventful, but on the second day, the expedition was forced to cross a lake whose waters came up to a man's chest and were full of fallen timbers. Once the main body of the army had reached the middle of the lake, an unknown number of natives attacked the waterlogged expedition, assailing the Spaniards from behind trees that had, until then, concealed their positions. As hand-to-hand -hand fighting ensued, more natives took positions atop the fallen trees and showered the Spaniards with missile fire, wounding men and horses alike. The Spanish, caught in the open, had no choice but to push onwards through the lake and reach the shore, set upon the entire way by the stealthy natives who were even able to free the Spaniards' native guides before the army was able to reach the far bank. Upon reaching the shore, the Spaniards were hard-pressed by the natives who aimed to cut off the expedition from moving further inland. Attempting to break through the native lines, any action against the native positions would lead to their repositioning so that they now fired upon the Spanish from hidden spots from behind thick brush and from within the lake, continually wounding the men and horses of the expedition. In a bid to cover the advance of the infantry, Narvaez ordered the horsemen to dismount and assault the natives on foot, allowing the footmen to reach the next crossing, and they did, forcing the natives to withdraw to another nearby lake, though taking some wounded in the process. The Spaniards had at this point reached another crossing, and though it was narrower, the difficulty of the crossing itself was far worse. Fortunately for the expedition, the natives were unable to prevent or even harass this second crossing as they had used up their entire arrow supply on the first crossing, and so the Spanish continued on for the rest of the day unmolested. It is unknown how many natives were killed or wounded, and though Cabeza de Vaca speaks of many wounded Spaniards, no exact number is given, and no Spanish dead are reported as a result of the day's fighting. On the third day of marching, Cabeza de Vaca himself, at the front of the column, found tracks of those who had gone ahead of the Spanish positions nearby a point of similar crossing to the previous day's attacks. Upon alerting Narvez, who was at the rear, the entire expedition was placed on guard, prepared to weather any native attacks. This crossing, however, was uneventful. But, emerging from the series of lakes and entering relatively open country, the natives continued to pursue the expedition. Knowing the natives were almost upon them, 
the Spanish launched two counterattacks, killing two native warriors, though Cabeza de Vaca and a handful of other Spaniards were wounded in the fighting. Resuming their march, they did not see any more natives for another week. But the natives were by no means finished. Only about five and a half kilometers from Alt, native warriors ambushed the rear of the column. A young boy in the service of a nobleman by the name of Avellaneda shouted, sounding the alarm as arrows shot out from the tree line. Avellaneda turned to aid his boy, pivoting back just in time for an arrow to strike the top edge of his cuirass, his metal armor breastplate. Piercing a thin edge of the armor, the native arrow drove straight into his neck, killing him instantly. As his body dropped to the ground in a pool of his own blood, the natives retreated back to the forest, as if nothing ever happened. Out of respect for the nobleman, the Spaniards decided that they could not just abandon his remains. Avellaneda's body, hoisted on the shoulders of some of the soldiers, was carried by the expedition on their final approach into Alt. The march had taken nine full, arduous days. Once in Alt, the Spaniards quickly realized there was not much of a village left. The people had all abandoned and subsequently burned down their homes, denying the Spanish easy shelter. The fields of corn, squash, and beans, however, were left untouched and ready to harvest. Feasting on the captured crops and bearing of Aeneda, the expedition would rest and out for two days. During their short stay in the decrepit village, at the behest of Governor Narvez, Cabeza de Vaca led a 60-man party to search for the sea, which was known to be nearby. They reached an inlet at sunset, where they gorged themselves on the great abundance of oysters and gave thanks to God for bringing them to such a bountiful location. In the morning, 20 men were sent to explore the coast who, upon setting off, would not return until well into the night of the next day. They came back to Cabeza de Vaca with reports of deep bays and inlets whose great inland expanse would do much to hamper the expedition. Considering how unprepared his men were for further exploration, they had no equipment and little supplies, Cabeza de Vaca returned with his men to Alt, only to find the governor and many others horribly ill, all the while fending off native attacks in their weakened state. Cabeza de Vaca gave his report of their coastal exploration, and though the country around them was still poor and rough, it was decided that the expedition would leave the following morning. Anything was better than this dangerous, disease-ridden camp. Or at least, that's what they thought. Leaving out, the expedition began to travel towards the location near the water where Cabeza de Vaca and his party had been only a day prior, though the rate of march this time around was far slower than usual. There were far too few horses to adequately carry the sick, and those on foot could only walk at a slow, feeble pace. The suffering of the sick progressively worsened as a result of their movement, and there was no medicine to care for them, nor any supplies, as after consuming the food out, the expedition found itself facing a dire lack of supplies yet again. Talks of cannibalism became ever more frequent with each passing hour. With morale plummeting, desertions began to occur. Many of the horsemen, possessing more confidence in themselves and their own odds over that of the expeditions, slowly peeled off from the rest of the army and rode into the forest, departing in secret. Their decision would remove them from the history books, and they were never seen again. No clues exist as to their fates, though it is doubtful that any survive for long. Some of the horsemen, however, not wishing either to risk the odds or dishonor their family names, chose not to abandon the governor and the sick, and elected to stay. It was at this point that Governor Narvaez gathered everyone around and personally inquired into each man's thoughts regarding their dismal situation. Now at the inlet, with a third of their remaining men sick and with their health rapidly declining by the minute, travel by land was ruled out. The army could march no further. Gazing out to the Gulf of Mexico, they knew there was only one other option. Thus, it was decided that their only means of survival was to take to the sea in a last-ditch bid to sail to Spanish-held Mexico. But they had no boats, and perhaps worse, they had no means to build the needed boats. They had no tools, they had no shipwright, 
They had no pitch, but they did have one carpenter and the desperate minds of men with the urge to survive. From their crossbows, stirrups, and various iron implements, they began to make tools, nails, hammers, saws, and axes to bend the environment to their will. From the palmetto trees that grew around them, they made holes to float in. From the shirts off their backs, they made the sails to capture the winds. From the manes of horses and fibers of palmetto husks, they made ropes and tackles to control the sails. From the ingenuity of a Greek named Don Teodoro and some pine trees, they made pitch to waterproof their vessels. From the nearby juniper trees, they made oars to carry them wherever the wind could not. They were fed throughout all this effort by four raids into Alt, whose raiders were made up of whatever healthy men and horses were available, each time returning with hundreds of bushels of corn after defeating their native opposition. On every third day, a horse was slaughtered and cooked to provide the men with meat and protein. Unfortunately, all this did not happen without loss. In an effort to retrieve seafood from the nearby coves and inlets, some of the expedition was twice ambushed by natives within view of the rest of the men. Before their eyes, those Spaniards at the camp stood helpless as ten of their brothers were shot dead in the surf. Despite their hardships, nothing slowed the men down, and the ad hoc shipwright soon met its goals. They had started construction on the 4th of August, 1528, and by the 20th of September, the expedition had assembled five rafts, each 33 feet long and capable of carrying the men by sea so long as they stayed near the shore. On the 22nd of September, they set sail at last, so loaded with men and supplies that the tops of the hulls stuck out only half a foot above the water. Governor Narvez's boat led the way with 49 men on board, followed by another with 49 men, this one under the command of the expedition comptroller and the commissary. Captains Alonso del Castillo and Andres Dorantes were in charge of the third boat and its 48 men on board, with the fourth having a crew of 47 under two captains by the name of Telez and Penalosa. The fifth boat, last in the convoy, held 49 men and was under the command of Cabeza de Vaca himself. For seven days they sailed along the coast of the Florida Panhandle without finding a single beach suitable enough to make a landing. Eventually, they came across an island just off the coast, and upon sailing towards it, noticed five native canoes heading straight for them. Perhaps spooked by the large number of men ahead of them, possibly an invading army, and or afraid of capture, the natives ditched their canoes in the water and elected to swim back to shore. The Spaniards in turn seized the opportunity and captured the abandoned canoes. Landing upon the island, the expedition quickly moved to search the small cluster of lodgings that existed on the beach. Finding them abandoned, no doubt the rest of the natives had fled, the men took what they could, bringing dried fish and fish eggs back to the boats, greatly bolstering their meager food stores. A seafood dinner featuring poor man's caviar was certainly a nice change of pace from the dwindling corn rations they had become so accustomed to. Having grabbed what they could, the expedition sailed off once more, not even stopping for the night. The following day, on the 29th of September, the Spaniards finally came upon a decent-looking shore and landed upon it. There, the five captured canoes were put to use, being stripped down and used to repair the hulls of the boats, additionally increasing the distance their hulls rose above the water. The vessels were now just a bit more seaworthy, but the supply problem had still not abated. The already meager supply of food the Spanish had brought aboard upon their original embarkation had continued to dwindle without any additional refreshing of the stockpile, save for the captured fish and fish eggs which the hungry soldiers had immediately devoured. To make matters worse, the water supply had also vanished, as the horse skin pouches the men were using to store the water had rotted through and fallen apart. Struck by the hyperlethal combo of starvation and dehydration, each raft subsisted off what they could, and in this manner the Spaniards would sail for thirty more excruciating days. At the end of the thirtieth day, late at night, 
their rafts slowly drifting in the water. A few of the men, kept awake on account of their hunger pangs, heard the faint paddling sound of a nearby canoe. In desperate need of any aid, they called out for it, but the mysterious canoe refused to approach them, and the paddling sound slowly faded away. As the sun rose the following morning, the distressed expedition landed upon a small island to search for water, only to be woefully disappointed, as there was not a single drop to be found. Making matters worse, as the expedition scoured the small patch of land for a source of hydration, a powerful storm blew in and lingered above them for six whole days, forcing the Spaniards to remain on the island. Having not drank anything for days and on the verge of death by dehydration, the men had no choice but to drink salt water. Some, however, consumed more than they could handle, and five men fell dead. Despite this tragedy, it was a miracle the number had not been higher. After this fateful occurrence, the Spaniards all at once decided to set sail yet again. Staring death in the face, they made course for where they believed the mysterious lone canoe had returned to after ignoring their calls for aid. Suffering pounding winds and drowning waves on account of the storm, the expedition found a bustling fishing village just before sunset, complete with dozens of canoes, lodges, and a seemingly peaceful populace. The natives took the Spaniards to their lodges, and Narvaez to the home of the tribal leader, and offered the beleaguered expedition great quantities of fish and much-needed water, to which the Spanish happily gorged themselves on. But as night fell, the natives showed their true colors. Without any forewarning, a great mass of warriors attacked the Spanish as they rested, with another group attacking the expedition's wounded that had been left on the beach. Some natives had even entered the house where Narvaez stood, wounding the governor with a blow to the face. Fearing for his life, Narvaez and his entourage attempted to seize the tribal elder as a hostage, but he narrowly slipped out of the Spaniards' grasp. Unable to secure their safety by other means, the expedition made a fighting retreat to their boats. There, most of those who survived the initial native attack, including the wounded governor, boarded the boats for safety, but couldn't set sail due to a lack of wind. Covering the trapped vessels, a band of 50 Spaniards, including Cabeza de Vaca, made a valiant stand on the shore. Throughout the dark of night, the native warriors launched three separate attacks upon the Spanish line, each more devastating than the last, the sheer weight of the native numbers countering the fine swordplay of the Spanish. In fact, the fighting was so fierce that the Spaniards had to continually give ground, slowly losing their foothold on the beach. Hard-pressed by the native warriors, every single man suffered wounds at the hand of the enemy. It was only after a force of 18 men, led by the aforementioned boat captains Durantes, Penalosa, and Telez, ambushed the natives from behind that the warriors were ultimately forced to abandon their efforts and retreat. As the sun began to rise on the horizon, the Spanish smashed 30 native canoes to prevent the natives from pursuing them before themselves heading out to sea. Despite everything that had happened, the expedition had managed to bring aboard a few containers of water, though the amount was so few that the men quickly found themselves in a state of hunger and dehydration once again. Sailing onwards, the convoy came across a lone canoe of natives heading right towards them. Signaling to them that they were in search of water, the natives agreed to bring them some, provided two conditions were met. First, that the Spanish provide the jars, and second, that Don Teodoro came with them. Narvez was suspicious and argued against Don Teodoro's joining, yet Don Teodoro bravely insisted. Any risk was worth taking, so long as it got them home alive. Recruiting another man from the expedition, the two gathered some jars and joined the natives in their canoe, who in turn left two of their own behind. Later that night, the lone canoe returned with the jars, but they were empty. Even worse, Don Teodoro and the other man were nowhere to be seen. Enraged at the treachery of the natives and the disappearance of their men, the Spanish began to threaten the natives in the canoe. The natives held by the Spanish, taking this as their cue, tried to escape by jumping overboard, but were forcibly held down. And with that, the lone native canoe turned around and left. 
In the morning, the natives returned, and in far greater numbers, attempting to intimidate the Spanish into giving up their hostages. Among them were a number of tribal leaders, and even more canoes that circled around the Spanish flotilla in an effort to prevent their escape. Declining to return the hostages until the natives returned the two missing men, the Spanish soon found themselves under fire as the natives proceeded to hurl stones and spears upon them, forcing the men to stay low, pressing themselves against the hulls as cover against the rain of projectiles. Fortuitously for the Spaniards, however, the wind then began to pick up, whipping the waves and forcing the natives to abandon their actions lest they swamp their canoes. Breaking off from the aquatic siege, the native canoes returned to shore, and the Spanish, catching the wind once more, sailed off, minus two of their own. Though the exact details of what happened to Don Teodoro and the other soldier taken by the natives are unknown, it is highly likely that both men were killed by the natives shortly after the Spanish left the area. Passing through the area years later, Spanish soldiers and historians recorded various accounts of natives mentioning how two Christians had lived with them at one time, likely a reference to the two abducted men. In every account, the natives do admit that they killed the two Christians, in one recorded instance even producing a dagger that belonged to one of the men. Yet, despite this fateful end, the legacy of Don Teodoro, whose real name was Teodoro Grigo, literally Theodore Greek on account of his birthplace, lives on. If these native accounts are to be believed, then Don Teodoro was not only the first Greek to ever set foot on American soil, but, living among the natives, even for a short time, made him the first Greek to reside in what would later be the United States, making him the first ever Greek-American. Commemorating his life, a 900-pound bronze statue of Don Teodoro on a tall pedestal stands today in Clearwater Beach, Florida. Part of the statue is a plaque that reads, The History of Greeks, Hellenes, in America, starts from here. There, that's a nice little bright spot in the middle of all this. Enjoy it now, because things will only continue to get worse for the Narvaez expedition. The battle on the beach and the abduction of Don Teodoro all happened somewhere in the vicinity of Mobile, Alabama, if the experts are to be believed. The Spaniards still have a long way to go. After sailing for some time, no date or time frame is given, the expedition came across the estuary of a large river, likely the Mississippi. Cabeza de Vaca, seeing this, elects for his boat to land so that they may search for water and food, though Narvaez decides that it's better instead to anchor offshore. This is where the expedition really becomes a disaster, just in case you didn't think it was already. Remaining at sea overnight and weathering a series of high winds and powerful currents, by dawn the next morning, all of the boats in the expedition had been blown far apart. Realizing that they were now alone, Cabeza de Vaca decided to just let his boat drift aimlessly, hoping the current would take him to the other separated rafts. Eventually, his decision would carry him within viewing range of two boats, and upon nearing the closer one, discovered that it belonged to Governor Narvez. Cabeza de Vaca made the argument that they should link up with the other boat, just beyond their current location, but Narvez argued that it was too far out to sea, and to follow it would only lead to the starvation of all on board. He, however, now made the call to go to land, as with the strength of their oars they would be strong enough to overpower the currents and reach the shore. Cabeza de Vaca, inspired by his resolve, elected to follow. The two boats began to row, though it soon became apparent that Cabeza de Vaca and his men could not keep up with those of Narvez. Not wanting for him and his men to be left behind, Cabeza de Vaca asked to be thrown a rope and towed, but Narvez replied that his men were only just strong enough to make the journey themselves, and that each boat should do what they could in order to survive. In effect, this meant that, by decree of the governor, it was every man for himself. As Narvez and his boat paddled away, Cabeza de Vaca steered his craft towards the second boat, still out at sea, captained by Penalosa and Telez. The two boats sailed in each other's company for four days before they were hit by yet another storm. 
At the mercy of the devastating waves and unable to aid their brothers in arms, Cabeza de Vaca and his men watched helplessly as the boat under Penalosa and Telez was swamped, the men aboard doing everything they could to bail the water out. But the sea was too rough, the waves were too high, and their efforts were too little, too late. Against their best efforts, the boat under Penalosa and Telez was claimed by the sea, slipping beneath the waves with all hands. Though still afloat and alive, Cabeza de Vaca and his men weren't faring much better than those who had already drowned. Continually stricken first by hunger and dehydration, and now the cold, creeping onset of winter, only five men aboard retained the strength to even stand. As night fell yet again, only Cabeza de Vaca and one other man were capable of steering the boat, with the other man asking to be relieved of his post as he felt he himself would soon die. Relieving the man of his duty, Cabeza de Vaca sailed the craft in silence for what must have seemed like an eternity, gazing out upon his forlorn men surrounded by the great black expanse of the sea. Hours later, the man awoke, and much to Cabeza de Vaca's surprise, he was more energized than before. Together, the two of them steered the boat towards shore, where they arrived at dawn. With the creation of a nice warm fire and the consumption of roasted corn and fresh rainwater, morale finally began to pick up a bit after months of misery. The date was November 6th, 1528. After some rest, Cabeza de Vaca, wishing to get the lay of the land, sent the only man among them who still possessed any strength to climb a nearby tree. From the top of the tree, gazing out upon the surroundings, the man relayed to Cabeza de Vaca and the others that they were on an island. Further study of the land along the beach led to the discovery of what seemed to be cattle trails, giving the men the idea that the island was inhabited by fellow Europeans. It was not. Sending the man from the tree inland, he quickly came across a collection of native huts, all empty at the time. Taking a few items, he began to return to his fellow Spaniards on the beach, though he quickly realized he was being shadowed by three native archers. Arriving back at the beach camp, the man hurriedly informed Cabeza de Vaca of his pursuers. Seizing the initiative, the Spanish on the beach began to shout and call out to the hidden archers, signaling to them that they were peaceful and that all was well. Knowing they had been discovered, the three archers emerged from the brush and sat some ways away from the Spanish position. Shortly thereafter, they would be joined by a further 100 native archers, frightening the Spaniards to a man, as not one of them was strong enough to resist. Wishing to calm the natives as they came closer, Cabeza de Vaca and another officer offered them beads and bells, symbolizing a desire for friendship. The natives reciprocated with gifts of arrows, gifted by hand rather than shot, and through signs told the Spanish that they would return the following morning bearing food for the beleaguered expedition. As they promised, the natives arrived the next day bearing great amounts of fish and nuts, continually arriving throughout the day with not only additional provisions, but with their families in tow, wishing to gain wealth through the Spaniards' gifts of beads and trinkets. After having been provided with food and water for the continuation of their voyage, the expedition, with great effort in their weakened and malnourished state, put back out to sea. Though back on the water, the foul weather from the days before had not totally subsided, and only a few hundred meters from shore, the boat capsized, throwing all the men aboard into the water. Three men, including the officer that had originally joined Cabeza de Vaca in the initial gifting of the beads the day prior, had clung to the boat as it overturned, sealing their fates as they were subsequently trapped beneath the boat and drowned. The rest of the men were thrown back upon the beach by the waves, now naked and freezing in the November cold. Hit by a chilling north wind and starved to the point where each man could easily count the other's bones, by the grace of God the Spaniards were able to construct a number of fires in order to keep themselves warm, though two men passed away in the cold before the fires could be completed. The natives, 
not having known the Spaniards had attempted to leave, returned at sunset with additional food, though upon seeing the horrible state the Spanish were in, became absolutely mortified and refused to get any closer. It took Cabeza de Vaca signing to them what had happened, telling the story of the capsizing as best he could with gestures and pictures in the sand, to bring the natives closer, upon which they collapsed in front of the Spanish and genuinely mourned for them and their condition. The natives' sympathy was all well and good, but Cabeza de Vaca knew that if he and his men were to survive, they need shelter and warmth. Begging the natives for his men to stay with them in their lodges, the natives not only agreed, but in an act of surprising altruism, physically carried the weakened Spaniards inland to their village. Along the way, the natives had even gone so far as to construct great fires at intervals along the road in order to ensure the Spanish stayed warm and that no one died of cold along the way. Once at the village, the Spanish were greeted with a large hut specifically built just for them, complete with roaring fires, and were granted food and celebratory dances, all courtesy of the native tribe. Once in relative safety from the elements, Cabeza de Vaca noticed one of the natives was wearing a trinket not given to him by those from his boat. Inquiring into it, by sign of course, all communication with the natives was done through gestures and pictures, the Spanish learned of the existence of more Europeans in the immediate area, men who were already looking for them after the natives have told them of the Spaniards' whereabouts. After conducting a short search, Cabeza de Vaca finally located the other Europeans, which turned out to be more Spaniards. Captains Andres Dorantes and Alonso del Castillo, complete with all the men who had been aboard their boat, had been run aground and stranded near the island only a day before Cabeza de Vaca and his men landed upon the island themselves. The two bands of men, now reunited, joyously got to work repairing the stranded boat and readying the beaten craft to carry them all, now approximately 80 men, back out to sea. But as the men were working, tragedy struck, as it always seems to do. A member of the expedition by the name of Tavera passed away, and shortly after, the boat sank and could not be recovered. With their hopes now underwater, it was decided that the men were too weak and the weather too foul to continue on for the time being, and the Spaniards had no choice but to all winter in the area, living amongst the natives. Everyone, that is, except for the four strongest men, who were to travel throughout the winter by foot in an attempt to reach the Mexican port town of Panuco, which the men believed to be nearby. Unbeknownst to the Spaniards, however, who were only in the vicinity of Galveston Island, Texas, Panuco was in fact still hundreds of miles away. Unaware of just how far they had to go, the four men found a native villager to serve as a guide, and with him departed on their way. After the departure of the four-man team, the weather took a turn for the worst and famine gripped the area, affecting both natives and Spaniards alike. Starvation took hold so fiercely that five Spaniards living in a hut on the beach were driven to cannibalism, with only one man emerging from the hut uneaten, as there was no one left to consume him. As horrible as that incident is, it captures only a fraction of the suffering that winter. Of the 80 men under Cabeza de Vaca and the captains Durantes and Castillo, soon only 15 remained alive. The natives themselves in the same period of time were afflicted with a stomach illness so lethal that it proceeded to kill off half of their tribe. Already incensed at the Spaniards for their cannibalism episode, and now believing the Spaniards were killing them with disease, perhaps rightly so, the natives resolved to kill the last 15 survivors. As they moved to carry out their attack, however, one of the natives defended the weak and defenseless Spaniards, saying that if they were the cause of all this, then they could keep their own people from dying, and that was clearly not the case. After all, there were now far fewer of them than there were before. Suitably convinced by that argument, the natives abandoned their plot. After some time, the natives, in an interesting twist of fate considering that they had just conspired to kill the Spaniards, pressed to make the 15 survivors into medicine men, essentially the healers and doctors of the tribes. Recognizing that they had no formal medical education or experience, the men laughed it off and declined. 
The natives, in turn, then proceeded to withhold all the men's food until they agreed to take up the role. The peoples of the area, as Cabeza de Vaca explains, usually ate quite little, or often not at all, as a result of how poor the land was. This made withholding the men's food a strong negotiation tactic, and the Spaniards immediately, though reluctantly, agreed. How's that for medical school? Cabeza de Vaca actually reports a great deal of success in the medicine men role the Spaniards performed. Thanking God, he explains how the men would treat the sick through the signing of the cross, prayer, and the reciting of Ave Maria and the Pater Noster, in English, the Hail Mary and the Lord's Prayer, after which the sick would instantly feel cured of any of their ailments. At some point, Cabeza de Vaca writes, the natives split up the Spaniards, sending 14 of the men with another tribe, perhaps a sister tribe, while the original tribe held on to Cabeza de Vaca. The native tribe that held the other men, however, would soon leave the area on their seasonal migration in search of food, and would not return until April 1529, leaving Cabeza de Vaca entirely alone with his tribe until then. Upon their return, the band of 14 men, this number excluding Cabeza de Vaca, of course, went out on a mission to gather together any other scattered survivors of the expedition. Leaving two men too sick to travel behind with the tribe, the twelve men, led by Alonso del Castillo and the Durantes brothers, Andres and Diego, set off in search of Cabeza de Vaca, having paid off a tribal elder to reveal his location as his tribe had moved. On the way, the men actually encountered another Spaniard, Francisco de Leon, who now expanded their search party to count to thirteen. Unfortunately, as the search party passed through this tribe holding Cabeza de Vaca, the tribesmen neglected, perhaps intentionally, to lead or guide the Spaniards to him, Listening to his comrades search the village for him, though far too sickly to personally gather the strength to leave his hut and meet them, Cabeza de Vaca could do nothing but lie there as the search party continued on without him. Having missed out on his chance to link up with the others, Cabeza de Vaca was now forced to live amongst the native tribe that held him for another year, suffering mightily from the native abuse and the punishing labor required to gather the edible roots that the tribe survived off of. After that additional year, he fled his life of slavery and escaped deep into the woods of the mainland, seeking safety and a better life amongst the Cherukan tribe. Amongst the Cherukans, Cabeza de Vaca took up the role of a trader, peddling shells, beads, hides, dyes, and flint, all highly valued amongst the native tribes. In this capacity, he flourished, traveling wherever and whenever he wished, and welcomed with open arms at whichever tribal settlements he stopped at. As this was all in modern-day Texas, this is perhaps the first recorded mention of southern hospitality. Even so, he wasn't spending all that time merely trading. Throughout his countless travels to and from the various villages, he kept his eyes open for how he may escape from the area and connect with his fellow Spaniards, wherever they may be. But he wouldn't do this alone. After the search party had moved on from the area, the two men too sick to travel had continued to stay behind with their respective tribe, with one of the men even passing away shortly after, or so he had heard. The last man, Lope de Oviedo, remained alone, and Cabeza de Vaca was not leaving without him. Over the course of six whole years, Cabeza de Vaca continued his life as a trader, picking up some of the local languages while traveling throughout eastern Texas, selling his wares and visiting de Oviedo annually, begging him to leave the tribe. Lope de Oviedo continually put it off until the next year, waiting for better conditions. When Cabeza de Vaca returned, de Oviedo still put it off until the next year, and then the next, and then the next, until eventually, at the end of the six years, he finally agreed to leave. Joined by a group of friendly natives, the duo traveled south along the coast, with Cabeza de Vaca even having to physically carry de Oviedo in his weakened state across the various rivers and inlets in their path. Eventually, the group reached a bay where upon further traveling, they met another group of natives, who had come specifically to meet them. The natives had great news. 
They knew of three Spaniards further on and were even able to provide Cabeza de Vaca with their names. Yet they also had bad news, horrible news even. Some of the other ten Spaniards who had been in the search party and who had struck out on their own had died of cold and hunger, and a further three, including Diego Durantes, had been outright murdered for fun by a nearby tribe. Andres Durantes, Alonso del Castillo, and the others were able to flee and seek refuge amongst the neighboring tribe, only to suffer further casualties as the natives they sought shelter with had decided to murder two of the Spaniards merely because of a dream. When asked about the condition of the survivors, the natives said that the remaining Spaniards had stayed with the tribe, but were often brutalized, being assaulted, kicked, and beaten regularly by the entire tribe. Now, I cannot fathom why any reasonable individuals would do this, but the natives, in an effort to physically show the duo what their fellow Spaniards were being subjected to, as relayed to us by Cabeza de Vaca, proceeded to assault and threaten first Lope de Oviedo and then Cabeza de Vaca, kicking them, holding arrows to their chests, and beating them up further. Lope de Oviedo was so traumatized by this that he elected to return to the land from whence they came with the native entourage that had so far accompanied them. Despite Cabeza de Vaca's best efforts, de Oviedo could not be swayed, and him, the native entourage, departed. Lope de Oviedo would never be seen again. Cabeza de Vaca remained in the area alongside the natives who had come out to meet him. The natives, knowing the tribe holding the other Spaniards, would arrive soon in search of walnuts. After two days of waiting, natives from the other tribe arrived and led Cabeza de Vaca towards the lodging of Andres Durantes, sending runners ahead to tell Durantes of the imminent arrival of another Spaniard. Durantes, emerging from his hut to see who it was, was at first frightened to see Cabeza de Vaca, believing he had died years ago. But this feeling quickly dissipated, and the two elatedly embraced. Now reunited, the two men began to travel to the neighboring tribe where among the natives lived Alonso del Castillo and his moor slave, Estevanico. While en route, Durantes explained to Cabeza de Vaca that he had been trying to convince the other two to escape for some time, but they had consistently refused, wary of the numerous bodies of water that they feared they must cross, as neither knew how to swim. Upon the arrival of Cabeza de Vaca, however, after a quick reunion, Durantes and Estevanico reasoned that Cabeza de Vaca could carry them across any rivers they might encounter, and so they readily agreed to escape. But despite the willingness of all four men to leave, it was decided that they would remain with the abusive natives for an additional six months, so as to fool them into believing no escape attempt would be made and taking advantage of the tribe's movement in search of food. While the men remained with the natives, Castillo told Cabeza de Vaca of the fates the various other men of the expedition were subjected to. The four men tasked with travel southwards by foot to seek help years before, having been sent out back when the 80-man party was attempting to construct a boat, had met disaster. After Castillo and the Durantes brothers' search party had passed Cabeza de Vaca, they proceeded to continue south until they came across a man by the name of Figueroa, the last survivor of those who had been sent south. Of the other three Spaniards in his party, two had died from starvation or exposure. Shortly afterwards, Figueroa and another survivor, Mendez, were taken captive by natives and taken to their village. Not wanting to chance his odds at surviving captivity, Mendez tried to escape, and after sprinting out of the village, was chased down by native warriors and killed before he could truly get away. Figueroa would not be alone for long, though, as he was soon joined by Hernando de Esquivel. Through Esquivel, then Figueroa, then Durantes, and then to Cabeza de Vaca, the fates of many others of the expedition had now become known. The boat with the expedition's comptroller and monks, among other survivors, had become trapped by a series of powerful rivers, their boat being rendered unusable. They were rescued by the boat carrying Governor Narvez himself, and together they would all continue down the coast for some time. One night, however, Narvez did not join the rest of the men in making landfall, and elected to remain on the boat with two others. That night, strong winds pounded the men ashore and whipped up the waves at sea. 
When the sun finally rose, the boat had vanished. Governor Narvez had been carried out to sea and had disappeared beyond the horizon. The rest of the expedition, those who had made landfall, continued along the coast, now led by a man named Pantoja, who had been elevated to the status of lieutenant of the expedition by Narvez before his disappearance. The Spaniards would set up a camp in some woods on the coast where they would try to survive the winter months. Despite having access to firewood and as much seafood as they could catch, men continued to pass away from the cold and hunger. These difficulties were made only worse through the abuses of Pantoja and his maltreatment of the other men. This would come to a head when Sotomayor, one of the survivors, struck Pantoja, assumedly upon the head in a quarrel, and outright killed him. Though now free of Pantoja's abuse, the environment proved to be far crueler, and the deaths of the men remained a common occurrence. Driven to desperation, the survivors turned to cannibalism, chopping up the dead to be cooked and consumed so that the rest of the camp could survive. This all proved to be in vain, however, and soon it was just Sotomayor and Esquivel left standing. With Sotomayor's passing, Esquivel was left entirely alone. This was until a local native found Esquivel, near death, while investigating the camp to see if there were any survivors. The native evidently belonged to the tribe that held Figueroa, who tried to persuade Esquivel to join him in going back along the coast in search of Penuco. Yet, Esquivel was under the impression that the port town was to their north. It was in fact, as I've mentioned, actually hundreds of miles to the south, and so he elected to remain behind as Figueroa left on his own. Tying this all together, when the search party had to escape from the murderous tribe that killed Diego Durantes and two others, Andres Durantes had fled to the neighboring tribe, the tribe in which Cabeza de Vaca had found him in. This tribe, coincidentally, was who Esquivel had been living with alone since the departure of Figueroa, but he was not there. Durantes learned through the tribal natives that a woman dreamt Esquivel would kill her son, a common phenomenon in the tribe that they often acted upon. Esquivel, upon hearing this, ran out of the village and attempted to escape into the wilderness, but was hounded down by the natives and killed. As proof of his having been with the tribe, Durantes was presented with many of Esquivel's personal possessions, including his personal sword and rosary. All five boats of Spaniards now accounted for, and everyone else having perished or disappeared, Cabeza de Vaca, Andres Durantes, Alonso del Castillo, and Estevanico were officially the last men standing, alone among less than friendly natives and inhospitable lands. Nonetheless, they were about to make a run for it. Now having been amongst their abusive native hosts for six months, the four men decided to take advantage of the tribe's movements in search of edible prickly pears to make good their escape. But upon the cusp of the breakout, they were forced to break from their plan. The natives of the village, viciously competing for a woman, became so hostile towards each other that they fractured, splitting the greater tribe into numerous smaller tribes and, going their own ways, separated the surviving Spaniards. The men, however, acted quickly and were able to agree to meet in the same area, that of the prickly pears, at a prearranged time one year in the future where they would eventually break free of their native overlords. After a year of separation, starvation, and further abuses, at a prearranged time, the four met at the prickly pear site. Together at last, the men finally made a run for it, hoping to cover as much ground as possible before the various native tribes realized they were gone. Spotting smoke in the distance, they moved towards it, coming across a lone native who, after some persuasion, agreed to lead them there. Approaching the village, they were greeted by four natives who had come out to receive them. The men were now among the Avavare tribe, active traders with those who the men had just fled from, but grateful for their appearance, as the men's reputation had preceded them, and they were known amongst the Avavare as powerful healers. Cabeza de Vaca and his small band of survivors would quickly be put to work. Now among the Avavares, the expeditionaries began to heal the sick with such a high rate of success, 100% according to Cabeza de Vaca's account, that word of these miracle medicine men spread like wildfire. 
Almost as soon as they were done healing the Avavare, additional sick natives were brought in from all the nearby tribes as fast as they could carry them. The men became so swamped tending to the sick and dying that Durantes and Estevanico, who at this point had left the healing to Cabeza de Vaca and Castillo, were required under sheer weight of numbers to step in. The men served in this capacity among the Avavares for a total of eight months, and in this manner earned the adoration of the native tribes, who, as a token of gratitude, bestowed upon them the title Children of the Sun. Though they were treated as well as any celebrity could hope to be, food was always in short supply. Still a long way from home, upon the return of the next prickly pear season, the man decided it was time to leave. The men first traveled a day's march away to the neighboring native tribe, before then traveling to the next one, the one after that, and so on and so on and so forth, jumping from tribe to tribe, healing the sick and wounded all along the way. No real account is left by Cabeza de Vaca as far as the grander descriptions of distances, directions, or time, so the tale takes a far less detailed turn from what anyone who reads his work will have become accustomed to. On the move, the four men continue to march deeper and deeper into the interior of the American Southwest, traveling from tribe to tribe where they lived off of prickly pear leaves, prickly pear fruit, prickly pear milks, and the occasional gift of deer meat or cornmeal. Over time, they began to gather quite a sizable entourage of native followers, though not just for their healing powers. Native cultural customs in the area dictated that when visitors arrived at a tribal village, the host tribe must allow the visitors to take from them whatever they wish. Quite understandably, with the appearance of any visitors, village residents would immediately hide their most precious belongings before letting anyone into their homes. However, this did nothing to stop the visitors from taking what common day-to-day -day goods they could, and every trip to the neighboring village always served to enrich the visiting party. For this reason, many natives tagged along with the Spaniards, essentially pillaging each village they passed as Cabeza de Vaca and the others went to work healing. Throughout his official account, Cabeza de Vaca goes into great detail about this, as well as numerous other native customs and courtesies, as the group treks across the American South. I can't recommend it enough, it's certainly worth a read. Traveling with his entourage in tow, the men proceeded to enter and spend time in the mountains of the North American interior, assessed by modern historians to be the Sierra Madre Oriental Range. There, as per Cabeza de Vaca's account, they would come across evidence of limited ironworking capabilities among the local tribes, a rare phenomenon as metallurgy in pre-Columbian America was extremely rare outside the heart of Mesoamerica. Led by native guides, as they always had been, the four Spaniards would eventually find themselves crossing a vast expanse of arid mountains so dry and devoid of life that edible plants and animals were non-existent. As a result, hunger began to grip the slow train of men and women harsher than usual, and it was only after crossing a great river and entering a large plain that their hunger began to subside, certainly helped by the great loads of edible gifts brought to them by the local native people. While pushing forward on their journey home, the four men hit a roadblock, metaphorically. The native tribe accompanying them and serving as their guides did not wish to lead them onwards, as they were afraid of both the neighboring rival tribe and of the desolate land ahead should they take any other way. They would not budge. Now unable to move any further, the four Spaniards understandably grew furious with an anger that would last the entire day. The natives, terrified of the Spaniards' wrath, begged for them to calm down, but before the Spanish did so, on that very day, a debilitating illness gripped the native entourage. Many fell sick on that first day, and on the second, eight of them had perished. The natives, already fearful of the Spanish anger, believed that it was the Spanish who were killing them, willing their deaths through sheer hatred and rage. The Spanish, however, were mortified, and began to extensively pray for the return of the natives' good health, and for God to assist them in healing those who had fallen ill. 
The sick would be treated and looked after for a total of 15 days. The natives at this point, having now been so cowed into submission out of pure fear that not a single one spoke or made any noise in the presence of any of the Spaniards. After the 15 days, Alonso del Castillo and Estevanico, guided by native women as they would not draw hostilities, ventured into a river valley between some mountains to search for the neighboring hostile tribe that the current tribe they resided with had been so scared of. Upon making contact, they returned to fetch the other Spaniards before making the jump to this new tribe. For the first time in years, in an unexplored land, the Spaniards laid their eyes on a home. Not just a thatch hut or a camp, but an actual permanent house in a permanent village made up of permanent structures. The people were rich with food and wares and did not hesitate to gift the Spanish anything their hearts desired. Even so, their time with these permanently settled natives would be short-lived and the Spaniards would continue their travels. Always marching towards the setting sun, the four men were sure that as long as they headed west, they would reach their goal. Walking as such, they crossed the entire countryside until they reached the Pacific Ocean. Having reached the far side of the continent, they then began to move south, passing through even more permanent native villages, each seemingly richer than the last. Living in a constant state of hardship, the men subsisted off of only a handful of food a day, but having accustomed themselves to long treks on little food, they continually astonished their native entourages with great feats of stamina. Despite speaking only six of the indigenous people's languages, and passing through lands of those who spoke thousands, Cabeza de Vaca tells of how blessed they were to always be understood by those they encountered, using their gift to communicate with the natives, whether by speech or by sign, to tell of their Christian faith. Cabeza de Vaca was confident that if he could speak their tongue, the entire population would have been made Christians. While traveling, the men spent some time in a native village notable for their abundant wealth of deer hearts, a staple of their diets. Far more notable, however, was the jewelry being worn by the inhabitants. During their stay, Castillo spied a peculiar necklace around the neck of one of the native men. Taking a closer look, he realized it was no ordinary necklace. It was comprised of a buckle from a sword belt and a horseshoe nail. When pressed for where the trinkets had come from, the natives told of how men on horseback bearing swords and lances had come and killed two of their fellow natives. Nervously asking what had happened to them, the natives replied that after the attack, the invaders had returned to sea. This was bittersweet news. On the one hand, the men were elated. This was the first they've heard of other Spaniards in years, and they had been in this very village, albeit under pugnacious circumstances. On the other hand, the Spanish force had returned to sea, which meant there was a high chance they were merely exploring the area, and it was doubtful Cabeza de Vaca and his ragaband of survivors would ever see them again. Still, with their hopes buoyed somewhat, they moved on from the village and proceeded further south. They would soon discover that the Spanish forces in the area were not merely exploring the surrounding lands, and that they had already left quite a mark. As the men moved south, all they saw was desolation. The land before them was green, fertile, and full of fresh water, but it was barren, absolutely bereft of life, human or otherwise. Coming across the occasional village, it was almost always abandoned with no trace of where the inhabitants had gone. Rarely, a village would still contain a few natives left behind. Here, the inhabitants would present the men with gifts of food and blankets they had kept in hiding. But who had they been hiding from? The Spanish. Following their guides, the four expeditionaries hiked up to the crest of a mountaintop, and once there, Cabeza de Vaca and the others realized just why the country had been so empty. The vast majority of the natives in the area, save the few who stayed behind, had all taken flight, each converging on this one point, accessible only by a single steep mountain trail. They had all fled there in stark fear of the Spanish, who had been raiding and plundering the area at whim, seemingly unchallenged. 
Having spent so long with the many native tribes throughout America and developing an affinity for them, this broke the men's hearts. Cabeza de Vaca writes at this time how all four of them resolved that upon their reunification with the Spanish, they would do everything they possibly could to cease the attacks upon the natives, and to persuade everyone that they could live together in peace and harmony. Regardless, the men were now sure that there were other Spaniards nearby, as natives had spotted them pass through the area not too long ago. Despite the horrible circumstances, for the four weary men, home was that much closer. Now possessing positive leads on nearby Spanish forces, Cabeza de Vaca took Estevanico and 11 natives to go out in pursuit of them, covering in a single day three times the amount of ground the unknown Spanish force had, as evidenced by their sleeping positions along the trail. Taking the night to rest, Cabeza de Vaca's party set off again at dawn the following day. All their progress would soon be rewarded, for in the morning, Cabeza de Vaca found himself face to face with a sight he had not seen in years. Standing in front of him were four Spanish soldiers mounted on horseback, so dumbfounded by what they saw in front of them that they were stunned into silence. The two Spaniards who stood before them looked almost alien, like feral men birthed in the wild, their thin frames covered only by filthy rags, their gaunt faces hidden by thick, shaggy beards. Baffled at what they found, the riders took Cabeza de Vaca, Estevanico, and the eleven natives to their commander, Diego de Alcavar, the captain of a small band of Spanish horsemen that operated in the area now known as the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Speaking with the captain, Cabeza de Vaca identified himself and Estevanico as survivors of the Narvez expedition, of a band of explorers who had been met with nothing but hardship after hardship, broken only by a rolling series of calamities, and that there were two more of them up in the nearby mountains. De Alcavar hurriedly dispatched riders to fetch Castillo and Durantes, who in turn would arrive with 600 natives in tow, the entirety of those who had been hiding up in the mountainside. For the first time since oh so long ago, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, Andres Durantes de Carranza, Alonso del Castillo Maldonado, and Estefanico, the last remnants of the Narvaez expedition, could lay their eyes upon fellow Spaniards. Having endured years with the natives of North America, sharing their highs and lows, starving with them, Feasting with them, suffering beatings from some and receiving gifts from others, the men had finally been delivered from the cruel American wilderness and back into Spanish hands. They had departed from Spain in the month of June 1527. It was now July, 1536. They had survived nine years of unrelenting suffering, had sailed hundreds of miles in crude rafts, and had trekked thousands of miles by foot over harsh ground. They had fought against hostile native tribes and the unforgiving environment the entire way, always on the cusp of death, but never giving in. Their constant battle to live had all been worth it. Having come so far, from Spain to Cuba, and from Tampa Bay to Sinaloa, the four men still had one last leg left in their journey. Hearing of the survivors upon their arrival into his lands, a local Spanish governor outfitted the men with horses, clothes, and provisions out of his own pocket, and then sent them down to Mexico City in order for the men to provide their official accounts to the Royal Viceroy of New Spain, Antonio de Mendoza. Riding over a thousand miles, word spread of their tale far faster than they could travel. Though their story was well known upon their arrival in Mexico City, the four expeditionaries were welcomed with great honors. They had more than deserved them. After relaying their accounts to Viceroy Mendoza, the Narvaez expedition had officially come to a close. Of the 600 men who had departed from Cadiz, Spain on a grand expedition nearly a decade ago, only four had lived to see the end. Having borne more than their fair share of hardships, the three Spaniards and the Moor were eager to resume their lives however they desired, dictated by themselves as they wish, not in an effort simply to survive. 
With the conclusion of the debrief, each man bid farewell to his brothers in arms, and the four sole survivors of the Narvez expedition went their separate ways. Estevanico, the Moor, was now the first North African of Berber origin to explore North America. Having already made a mark on this wild new world, he refused to settle, and hastily began preparations for another great adventure. Returning to Sinaloa, he met up with the Italian friar Marcos de Niza, who had put together an expedition in search of the Seven Cities of Kibola, perhaps better known as the Seven Cities of Gold. A popular 16th century myth, legend told of seven cities of gold nestled deep in the territory of modern New Mexico. With the accounts of Cabeza de Vaca and the other survivors circulating throughout New Spain, rather than being dispelled, the myth was taken to soaring new heights. Ecstatic to have Estevanico on his team, Deniza made him the expedition's lead guide, pushing him ahead of the main body with a party of Sonoran Indians. Sometime in the year 1539, Estevanico and his native scouts reached a village of Hawica, belonging to the Zuni people. However, though we know that they did in fact reach the village, what exactly happened at Hawica is unknown. No first-hand accounts exist of the interactions between Estevanico and the Zunis, but we do know this. As per Marcos de Niza's writings, a few of the scouts from Estevanico's party returned back to the expedition's main body, bloody and barely clinging to life. According to them, Estevanico and the rest of the guides had all been killed by the Zunis. Officially killed by the Zuni people, no details are known as to how he met his end, and all stories of his fate are almost entirely rooted in legend or speculation. One assessment suggests he was killed for dressing as a medicine man, whose impersonation was punishable by death in Zuni culture. Some historians say he was killed for looking like an evil sorcerer, or for trying to demand turquoise and women. Others even say that it was all a ruse, and that the Zuni helped him fake his own death to escape the Spanish and live a life as a freedman among the tribe. Whatever the cause, Estevanico dropped off the historical record in 1539, dead or otherwise. Andres Dorantes would be offered by the Viceroy to lead a new expedition in an effort by the government of New Spain to capitalize off of his experience wandering the American South. Dorantes, however, decided that he had had enough adventuring for one life and politely declined the offer, choosing instead to return to Spain. Unfortunately for his plans, while just beginning to sail for home, the ship he was on was pronounced unfit to sail, and so he returned to the port of Veracruz. After this, he never left New Spain again, permanently settling in the state of Veracruz, where he would go on to live a quiet life, marrying twice, having 14 kids, and passing away sometime in the 1550s. Alonso de Castillo would spend the rest of his life in New Spain, marrying in Mexico and becoming a prominent landowner in the Mexican state of Puebla, briefly voyaging to Spain in 1541 to claim an inheritance from his father, who had passed away while he was trekking through the depths of North America. Returning to Mexico, he rose through the ranks of the colonial administration, and in 1545 served in the prestigious role as treasurer of Guatemala. The last known record of Alonso del Castillo is dated to 1547, where he was listed as a witness in some sort of trial. His whereabouts afterwards are unknown, and it's believed he passed away sometime in the late 1540s. Cabeza de Vaca returned to Spain in 1537, and, well aware of his status as an early European explorer, immediately began to write about his experiences in the New World. Collected and published in 1542, his work was originally titled The Story of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, often referred to in Spanish as La Relación, though it can be found today under various other titles, such as Castaways or The Chronicle of the Narvaez Expedition. The latter, published by Penguin Books, is what I use as my source material for this episode. 
The first European book completely devoted to North America, and the first written description of the American Southwest, Cabeza de Vaca's narrative provides detailed accounts of what he saw and heard throughout, quote, the nine years I wandered lost and miserable over many remote lands, unquote. In his own words, he wanted to convey, quote, not merely a report of positions and distances, flora and fauna, but of the customs of the numerous indigenous people I talked with and dwelt among, as well as any other matters I could hear of or observe, unquote. In this manner, he fulfilled the role as a proto-anthropologist, relaying to his audience many in-depth descriptions of the Native American peoples he encountered, such as their treatment of offspring, their wedding, their wedding rites, main sources of food, migrations, and other cultural practices. For many peoples, the accounts of Cabeza de Vaca, and later Hernando de Soto, are the only written records of their existence. By the time of next European contact, many of the tribes had vanished from disease, famine, and tribal warfare. One of Cabeza de Vaca's greatest achievements of his journey was that he played an important role as an ambassador to bring peace throughout the land. As the party of travelers passed from one tribe to the next, warring tribes would often immediately make peace so that the natives could receive the party and give them gifts. Cabeza de Vaca notes in his personal account of his journey that in this way, quote, we left the whole country in peace, unquote. Seeing these events as part of his mission and purpose in America, he acknowledged in his account that he believed that, quote, God was guiding us to where we could serve him, unquote. Cabeza de Vaca's greatest challenge as an ambassador of peace and of Christ came when he attempted to bring peace between the conquering Spanish army and the natives. As Cabeza de Vaca approached the location where they met Captain de Alcaraz of the Spanish cavalry, he and his companions were very grieved to see the destruction of the native villages and enslavement of the local people. Their fertile land lay uncultivated, and the remaining natives were all in hiding on the verge of starvation for fear of the Spanish army. Cabeza de Vaca, upon encountering Diego de Alcaraz, and this is something I didn't dive into earlier, so I could cover it here, attempted to negotiate peace between the Spanish and the natives. Though initially successful, as soon as Cabeza de Vaca and the others departed for Mexico City, Diego went back on his word and plundered the entourage of natives that Cabeza de Vaca had sent home. Not long after this, Cabeza de Vaca encountered the chief alcalde, the Spanish captain of the province, named Melchor Diaz. Melchor Diaz ordered Cabeza de Vaca to bring the natives back from the forest so that they would recultivate the land. Bringing them back to their villages, Cabeza de Vaca and Melchor Diaz invited the natives to convert to Christianity. So impressed by Cabeza de Vaca's abilities as a healer, the natives did so willingly, and were in turn told to build a large wooden cross in each village so as to protect themselves from Spanish attacks. Soon afterwards, the force under Diego de Alcaraz passed through the area and relayed to Melchor Diaz that they were shocked at how, on their return journey, not only did they find the land repopulated, but the natives coming to greet them with crosses in hand. More than pleased with the natives' conversion, Melchor Diaz ordered de Alcaraz that no harm be done to them, and thus peace was brought to the region. After residing in Spain for a few years, Cabeza de Vaca was appointed by the Spanish crown to be the governor of the Rio de Plata province in 1540, where he would administer a tract of land composing parts of modern Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. In 1542, the same year he published his book, he reached the city of Asuncion and relieved the previous governor of his post before taking over the role of provincial governor that same year. Unfortunately for Cabeza de Vaca, however, the previous governor, a man named De Arala, undermined his rule. 
living among Native Americans for years while he wandered through the American South, at times as a guest and cohabitant, and at other times a slave to his native host, Cabeza de Vaca developed a great respect for the greater Native American people, and this showed in his treatment of the natives within the colony, as he dealt with the area's various tribal peoples in an unusually sympathetic attitude relative to his contemporaries. While a step forward for indigenous rights, it did nothing to win over the colonial elite in Buenos Aires. Deirala, capitalizing on this, began to stir up unrest amongst the elite colonists which, coupled with Cabeza de Vaca's failed expedition east to find an overland route to Peru, all but ended Cabeza de Vaca's political career. Arrested by de Arala for poor administration in 1544, Cabeza de Vaca was sent back to Spain in 1545 to stand trial. Although exonerated, he would never return to the Americas, and would remain in Spain until his death in 1560. Cabeza de Vaca's enduring legacy is one of adventure and survival. Unmarred in his failures in the political arena, Cabeza de Vaca has gone down in history as one of the Age of Exploration's greatest men, an explorer like no other, who fought through hordes of wild men in wilderness to emerge with an unrivaled description of lands that remains unmatched in detail and scope. Despite mankind's increasing capabilities in the field of anthropology, the story of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca stands to this day as the most comprehensive and reliable account of life in the American South before widespread European disturbance. Not just a survivor, but a man of the people too, his radically positive views on indigenous rights did much to change the thinking of many European missionaries, explorers, and colonists, saving an untold amount of lives. It is an absolute honor to have covered such a titan of a historical figure, and I thank you for tuning in. No matter what you think of the podcast, I can assure you that I have not done Cabeza de Vaca any justice, and implore you to go out and read his work yourself. You won't regret it. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank you for listening to episode 2 of Exhibition History, the Narvaez Expedition. Tune in for the next episode as we shift our focus to the Viking Age, as we dive into the life and times of Harald Hardrada, the last Viking king. Remember to rate, follow, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time on Expedition History. <laughs>